opposed to him. No, what we're seeing is the fruit of the seeds that we have sown as a society ourselves. And it's bringing forth a harvest of destruction. That was the way God ordered things when he created. That was the way he wired things and set them up, that these seeds would bring forth their own destruction. And in that sense, through that lens, we must understand the wrath of God. Not, not as, as, as some whimsical, random, angry, bearded father-like figure with a big stick. That's not the image at all that is properly understanding God and His justice and His judgment. Sin has its own natural, disintegrative, destructive, deathly consequences. So to work against social injustice and to call people at the same time to salvation repentance before God unto life in God, in Yahweh, not Elohim, the impersonal, but Yahweh. They interlock theologically. You can't separate them as far as God is concerned. Now, I know we have, and we do. And there's worthy missions that are happening here in our own city and around the world. And they're wonderful in and of themselves. And I'm not preaching against those things. But what I'm saying is God gives us a greater picture of all this. In His heart and intention, these were always meant to be held together as one, interlocking as far as He was concerned. They're not to be separated. Let, let me reference uh, a more recent, though it is, it is history and he has passed on. Uh, it's still, I think, fresh enough on our historic radar that it, it, would might, it might serve to help us understand this. And he's a, an individual that is a personal spiritual hero of mine, Martin Luther King, Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. did not make the mistake of separating these things. Separating the call for social justice from belief in God. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he responds to the question of how he can advocate civil disobedience, the breaking down of some laws, in this case the law of racial segregation, and he answered that some laws are unjust. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to, to disobey unjust laws. He said, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, that begs the question, what is the difference between the two, a just law and an unjust law? Who determines that? Who defines that? 
And MLK answers the question right here. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that requires, or, or rather that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. I'll say that again. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. So what we're seeing here in Martin Luther King's statement is there is no separation between working for justice in society and declaring the displeasure of a just God. There's no separation. In his great I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King did not appeal to the belief of our modern age, the, the great zeitgeist, the, 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 the nature of our modern culture and age, the, the general intellectual and culture, cli cultural climate of our era. He didn't appeal to that, which was moral independent individualism, the same as it is for us today, he did not say all should be free to define their own meaning in life and moral truth. It's all relative, subject to each person. He didn't say that. Rather, he quoted the Scripture and called his society, let God's justice roll down like waters. In fact, it's on the screen, I believe. Let's say it together. The words of the prophet Amos. Let God's justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. He held the two together, interlocked. He did not separate them. Social justice and a call to turn to God. So we see here in Jonah the mystery of mercy and the scandal of grace in God. Even though Jonah let the Ninevites know that forgiveness was possible, that was not the main thrust of his preaching. The summary that the text gives us of his sermon was not in 40 days, Nineveh might be overthrown. No, he says, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was what Jonah eagerly desired and predicted. Jonah wanted to see that happen. He enjoyed preaching wrath. Jonah loved that fire and brimstone message and took great delight in delivering it to these people that he considered inferior pagans. He did it with a, a sense of giddiness and glee. He didn't do it with tears or heartbreak because he couldn't wait for God's hammer to fall on these people. He was determined to see fire fall down from heaven and make crispy critters out of them. 
this latter-day Sodom. But what happens? We see God responded with mercy and grace. How utterly mysterious, how absolutely scandalous. When God saw what they did and examined their deeds, how they turned, they didn't turn in repentance unto salvation and to giving their lives over to Yahweh. Their turning was just one of social reform. But yet even that tugged at God's heart. And when he saw how they turned, even to the measure that they did turn, and how they forsook their evil ways, their violent ways, their wicked ways, he relented and he renounced the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not carry it out, verse 10 tells us. He repented, if you will. God repented. That is to say, he turned from what he had originally said he would do. Beloved, the Old Testament is not at all embarrassed about saying that God changes his plan. This might rattle some of our religious cages here a little bit and shatter some of our stained glass window views of God. But the Old Testament, if we're honest in our treatment of it and in our reading of it and our understanding of it, the Old Testament is not at all shy or embarrassed about saying God changes His plan. Not randomly, not arbitrarily, not whimsically, but in His sovereign freedom. You can look at Exodus 32 or Amos 7 or Jeremiah 18 and 26. You'll see other examples of this. Again and again, the Old Testament witnesses to the fact that God is responsive to His creation creatures. He is a responsive God. He does not set His mind on some matter relating to His people and then stubbornly pursue it to its conclusion irrespective of how they may respond. As people change, as history develops, God's nature and character are unchangeable. Please hear me closely what I'm about to say to you. As people change and as history develops, God's nature and His character are unchangeable, but His responsive ways and His tactics and His means to what is currently happening are unpredictable. He responsively adjusts his approach like any good and wise father would. He's not like me. A stubborn, pig-headed father at times that says, this is the way it's going to be. And even though the response of my children may truly change and be repentive, if you will, that doesn't matter, this is the way it's going to be. Father God doesn't deal with us like that. He sees our hearts, even if they're just in measure. 
changing. Now, that said, always in view for God will be His salvific, redemptive will for His creation, humankind. In other words, God's purposes are always anchored and driven in His salvation, redemption plan. And that, too, will remain unchangeable. But it is precisely in the light of that unchangeable, redemptive will of God for the salvation and for the restoration of His world that we call home that He will change His course of action in the light of human response. Ezekiel is another good example to look at for us in Ezekiel 18. Verses 22 and 32. God is not capricious in His actions. He's not whimsical. He's not arbitrary. Like I said, He's not just sitting on the edge of His throne with a big stick, randomly waiting to just lash out at anything and everything that He just whimsically has a desire to do. He's not that kind of God. He will change His course of action in light of human response. Again, God is not capricious. Never is He whimsical or capricious or arbitrary. So the community of faith ought not to be left. We ought not to be a people that are left in a perpetual state of anxiety regarding the course of His action. You see, the picture of God with a big stick leaves us there. In this, in this posture of perpetual anxiety that I better be careful because maybe God's going to strike me. He's going to blast me down. He's going to strike me with lightning. He's going to throw down His wrath upon me because of the understanding we have of the wrath of God, which is not a biblical one. The confession that we'll look at later on in chapter 4 and verse 2 makes it evident that God's will is always, His will is always to save. Always to save His people, not destroy them. Hello? I'll say that again. God's will is always to save people, not destroy them. Now, if they choose to take on the destructive wages of their lives given to sin and destruction and violence, then that's their own choosing. But that is not God's desire for them. The tired old question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? He doesn't. That is not His desire. He desires that all would be saved. He is willing that none should perish. Hello? Are you tracking with me here? He is merciful and compassionate. These are the words of chapter 4, verse 2. God, Jonah says, God, I knew you would do this. God, I just knew it. I knew if I went and I preached, I knew you'd do this, God, because I know you're compassionate and you're merciful. 
And if I was obedient and followed through on the word you were calling me to preach. You see, even Jonah knew. Jonah knew that God is merciful and compassionate and desires to save, not destroy. Though God does bring his, his, he exercises his judgment upon the fact that this sin and this destruction and this violence is going to bring about an explosion, a wildfire of, of destroying this whole city, and you need to let them know that. Jonah, you need to proclaim that to them. You need to bring that truth to them. But Jonah knows that if he does and the people happen to turn, God's merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. Beloved, I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that God is merciful and compassionate and he's slow to get angry with me. And his love toward me is unfailing. And he does not treat me as my sins deserve. Where would we be if he did? None of us would be here today if we truly, really believed our understanding of the wrath of God the way we have misguidedly understood it. God's primary purpose is always redemptive and restorative. Never forget that. His primary purpose is always redemptive and restorative. Always. He will always act in ways and by means that are consonant with His ultimate redemptive objective, which is the salvation for His world. The redemption of His world. All creation. However, let's be clear. A confession of faith is not reducible to a scheme or a formula whereby it can be determined precisely how God will act in specific cases. The divine who knows that the king of Nineveh asks in verse 9. That divine who knows perhaps safeguards the divine sovereignty and enables grace to remain truly grace. This pagan king whether he knew it or not, expresses an understanding of God that is more accurate than the people of God themselves even had, than Jonah had. Jonah's an example to us of how not to be a follower of Christ. Hello? <laughs> and consequently, the Ninevites, as we know, they turn from their wicked ways in verse 8 in the hope that God may change his mind and turn from his anger. In verse 9, we see that. And when God sees that the Ninevites have turned, that they've repented, if you will, in, in this measure, not towards salvation, but in changing their ways with each other, this social reform that we ha see happen, God turns. He repents, if you will, or relents and turns in verse 10. And God's repentance is a sovereign, it's a free, it's an indiscriminate response to the repentance of the people. Now, of course, the Ninevites are grateful for a God who is willing and able to change. Only with such a God would it be possible finally for anyone, for any of us to live. 
Beloved, we here, all of us, are able to live and be sitting here and breathing today by the fact that God, who abounds in steadfast love, can of His own sovereign free choosing change and turn aside the end and the outcome that is truly deserved by all of us. Hello? So here again we see contrasts between Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah the prophet and Nineveh the pagans. Jonah, a member of the people of God, Israel, remains unresponsive in the face of a long history of divine relationship with God. Jonah prefers a God who does not repent indiscriminately. On the other hand, the pagan Ninevites are grateful and respond at the first word from God that they hear. More particularly, Jonah remains unmoved by his sins against God, while the Ninevites are open to repentance. Beloved, the wicked Ninevites are not some special case in God's world that proves that God is unjust. Rather, we begin to see that in the final analysis, the Ninevites are no worse in the sight of God than Israel is. Than we are. You and me. We are Nineveh. We are Israel. We are Jonah. God responds in ways that are always grounded in His goodness, His love, and His justice, held simultaneously and mysteriously in tandem together. And at this, Jonah is bamboozled. Jonah is gobsmacked at this. And he's plunged back into the depths of his despair and disappointment with God. Rescued from the fish, God's salvation picture in and of itself, this great fish, now he's plunged back into this disappointment with God, this anger with God, this despair, and his response may be surprising to us, but perhaps, if we're honest, not so much. Loved ones, if we are not anchored in the goodness of God, please hear this, and, and, and with this we're done. If we are not anchored in the goodness of God, that He is a good God, that He is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, unfailing in His love. If we are not anchored in the goodness of God who holds justice and grace and love mysteriously in tandem together, He doesn't separate. If we're not anchored in that, listen, we will always lower our theology to match our perspective and our experience and our pain and our struggle 
and our disappointment. We will allow all those things to become the lens through which we define God. If we are not anchored in God's goodness. So now the stage is set. The table is set for the remarkable final chapter of Jonah's encounter with the Lord God.